Well, good morning to all of you, and uh, welcome to the Leewood campus. Thank you for uh, uh, reading God's Word so beautifully to us uh, this morning. So we're glad you're here. If you're visiting especially, my name is Tom Nelson, and uh, thanks for coming on such a beautiful day. Well, one of the things that I've found in my life is that uh, warnings are really helpful. I uh, often need warnings to get me through the day, like my little cell phone jingles when an appointment is due, and I don't miss it thanks to that warning. Sometimes, like this week, my car gives me a warning. It uh, has a little light on the dashboard and says, I need attention, I need attention. Uh, Warnings are a part of all of our lives, and uh, they are important. This past week, I uh, ran into a website that I thought was rather interesting. It was about warnings, warning signs. And some of them are rather obvious. I thought I'd just sort of show you a couple, three of them that I found most interesting. First of all, this one, uh, it's an actual warning, checking baby's diaper. Um, Now, that's an obvious one, isn't it? Here's another one I love. Do not hold the wrong end of a chainsaw for all you uh, macho guys out there. And this one is my favorite of all. Uh, I'll let you read it. (laughs) I don't know why that has to be a warning. Do you? It's like, wow. Well, several years ago, um, my wife and I, when we were studying in Israel and we were near this archaeological dig, ran into another sign that if you ever go to Israel, you want to know that some signs are really important. And so important is this sign that not only is the Hebrew language there, but the English, lest we miss it. And it's this one, Mokashim Haker. It's danger mines. And uh, this archaeological dig was right next to an old minefield from World War II. So this sign is really important because if you take one misstep, it might be perilous. Signs can be really serious, and there are warnings that we need to heed, right? That's sort of part of life. And Jesus speaks of sort of a, well, danger minefield ahead. Uh, Jesus taught many things, and if you have been a part of the church for a while, you're new to the church, you know that Jesus taught many things. He's known as the brilliant teacher, He taught wonderful things like the golden rule, which we really like. And uh, sometimes Jesus gives us in our series this fall very startling statements. And this morning's startling statement is really a warning. It's a stunning warning that demands our attention. And it is a hard text not only to teach, but a hard one to hear. So I would like to just encourage all of us this morning, as we open God's Word, to just bow in prayer with me for a moment. Would you do that? And uh, I'd like to just ask the Lord and ask you to pray, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, the prayer of the psalmist, Lord, your Word is a light unto my path and a lamp to my feet. Lord, speak to me through your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. In this series, we are uh, asking two basic questions. Who is Jesus, and what does it mean to follow him? And this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 7, the gospel of Matthew chapter 7. Now, as we enter into this text where we find this startling statement, we need to understand that it is the most famous sermon ever preached. It is Jesus' sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And its literary placement is important for us to grasp because Jesus has just finished the golden rule. And he builds to the end of his sermon and he gives us a warning sign. Before he does that, 
After the golden rule, he presents to us in a very vivid contrast what scholars call the great divide. You'll notice if you look at your text in verse uh, 13 and 14, you'll notice he compares two gates and two ways, the narrow gate and the hard way and the wide gate and the easy way. What Jesus is saying is that the narrow gate and hard way is the path to life. And notice his language that he is the narrow gate, and right away Jesus presents to us a picture of religious exclusivity. Now, for most of us, when we hear that language of exclusivity, particularly religious exclusivity, that Jesus is the gate and he is the narrow gate, the way, many of us push back from that, right? Because our cultural context, and uh, this was also true in the first century, tended to think that there were many paths to God. You just sort of had different ways of getting there. And Jesus, in his great sermon, addresses that head on. What Jesus is going to say, whether we necessarily like it or not, Jesus is going to say that he is the exclusive way. He is the narrow gate. And following him is a hard path of carrying our cross in a hard path of discipleship. I love how Yale theologian Mirzlaf Bolf addresses this because we tend to sort of say, Jesus is nice, but I'm not sure about his teaching if we look at it carefully. And Mirzlaf Bolf says this, because some of us, when we hear this idea of exclusivity in a very inclusive culture, think of it as as plausible as a square hole or a square circle. And Mirzlaf Bolf says this, We may believe in Jesus, but we do not believe in his ideas. Now, I want to suggest that that sometimes is a convenient way to address an inconvenient truth, but it is not integral. We must not separate Jesus' person from what he taught. So I hope you will engage with me this morning because his message is a compelling one. This is what his Sermon on the Mount builds to. This is his big idea and we must not miss it. Now, Jesus says there are two paths, and which path we are on makes all the difference in the world. Sounds like Robert Frost, doesn't it? And Jesus will say and paint for us a warning sign. The text that we heard read so beautifully this morning is really understood in its logical interconnection in three lines of a warning sign. I want you to picture in your mind this morning a warning sign that says, Danger! On it has three lines because Jesus' logic is intricate, it is inextricably linked, and it's compelling. The first line is this, don't be deceived by others. Don't be deceived by others. The second one is don't let yourself be deceived. Don't deceive yourself. And the third line says, follow me. So if you want to follow Jesus' framework, his literary sign, his warning sign, the first piece of this text is don't let others deceive you. Secondly, don't be deceived yourself. And third, but do follow me. Okay, so we want to dive in. That's the structure. That's the literary sign of warning that Jesus gives us. Now, I want you to notice that he sets the tone and does a hairpin turn, literarily, from the wide and narrow gate on verse 15 now to a strong warning. Look with me at verse 15 if you have your Bible open. In verse 15, Jesus says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly 
are ravenous wolves. Now, sometimes it's really hard to grasp Jesus, isn't it? Not only because he's so brilliant, but we have a strong language disconnect, a strong cultural distance, and a very different personal location of how we read this text. If we enter into the first century world and enter into Jesus' language and what he is saying, you will notice in verse 15 that he begins with a very strong word that is translated into English, beware. It could easily be translated, danger, with all caps. Now, what is Jesus doing? He has given us the golden rule, this path of righteous living. He has talked about the narrow and wide gate. And the path to life is the narrow gate and the hard way. Now he says, beware, beware, beware. It is like Jesus sets off a literary smoke alarm. We've all had that difficult experience when your battery goes out or there's something going on, a bug goes through your smoke detector, right? It happens at night, doesn't it? It's like right in REM sleep. You know, your whole life is just... When a smoke alarm goes off, nothing more, I mean, nothing matters till it's addressed, right? It's the nature of it. It just drives you crazy. Or you're sitting in school. Kids are sitting in school and there's a fire drill. I mean, the good thing is you don't have to study, right? You have to leave your class, but you have to go back to your books later. But everyone evacuates the building. Everything stops because of attention is focused on the alarm. That can be true in a business context. But this is what Jesus is doing. He is literally switching gears and he is setting off an alarm, It's going, eh, eh, eh. That's the idea. Very intense Greek word. Also, he embeds his idea in a cultural metaphor of sheep and shepherds and wolves. You know, we don't really deal with that very often. We might have coyotes out here. But we don't encounter sheep every day like his listeners did. And shepherds, that's a foreign idea to us. So what Jesus is saying is in the first century that was common, the greatest danger to a flock, and sheep were very helpless, were wolves that came out at night, stayed near the flock, and in the shadows emerged to feast on the sheep. The shepherd, number one job was to protect the sheep from the wolves. And Jesus paints this ugly picture of a wolf disguising himself as a sheep during the day and then having a feast of the sheep at night. So what is Jesus doing? Jesus is painting a very vivid picture of wolves licking their chops rather than protecting the sheep as a shepherd is to do. Now the shepherd is actually devouring them by, in the context, notice the text, by encouraging the sheep to go down the wide gate and the easy path, a path that leads to destruction. Now, you will notice that Jesus continues his theme in verses 16 through 20. If you have your text open, I hope you follow along. He says, okay, how do you, how do you know that there are wolves and sheep clothing? Watch out for false prophets, for false teachers, for false spiritual leaders. That's the idea. And he says, it's like the natural realm, guys. It's like you can tell the real deal versus the fake. How do you tell? You have to look real closely. Be discerning. Get in close. That's the idea of... He takes uh, figs and berries, the the grapes were common in Palestine. He says, from a distance, they can look like something else. But when you get in really close, you see it. Or a healthy tree produces healthy fruit. Everybody knew that from an agrarian world. All you had to do is look real closely at the tree or the figs or the grapes. You knew exactly it was the real deal or a fake. But you got to look close. 
And notice that Jesus repeats twice. You will recognize them by their fruits, their picture of their character, their conduct. Look closely. Look under the hood. You'll see it if you look closely. Smell carefully because they look like a sheep from a distance, but they're really a wolf. Eugene Peterson knocks it out of the park. For all you baseball fans, I know some of you Yankee fans are really bummed out. Detroit fans, anyway, that's another story. But Eugene Peterson knocks it out of the park in his paraphrase here. This verse, and listen to what he says. I just love how he's got this. He says, be wary of false preachers who smile a lot. I guess I better not smile, huh? You know, it's like, how do you, how do you say this? Uh, dripping with practice sincerity, chances are they are out to rip you off some way or another. Don't be impressed with charisma. Well, I guess I'm okay there. <laughs> Look for character. Who preachers are is the main thing, not what they say. A genuine leader will never exploit your emotions or your pocketbook. Now, can I as a pastor chat a little bit about this before we jump on? Because Jesus is not just concerned with those who deceive you. But let me say a couple things about that because this is a deep concern for me as a shepherd. I think today people are deeply duped by spiritual fakes and wolves in sheep clothing. One of the things that stuns me from my vantage point is how we in our culture are, have the highest standards for those who watch our bodies, those who care for our bodies, those professionals in the medical health profession, that we demand the highest training, the highest intellect, the highest competency and character for those who will take care of our bodies. Also, is it not true, those people, men and women who are entrusted with our money, our investment advisors, portfolio managers, man, we are very careful with that. Rightly so. Are they competent? Do they have a track record? Do they have impeccable character? Are they out for us or for them? But when it comes to those we entrust our souls to, the nurturing of our families and our spiritual life, so often in our culture, we buy into a smooth, slick-speaking person or slick salespeople who have a compassionate, tender heart. But we must be discerning. Jesus says, be discerning. If you are a follower of me, be discerning. There are wolves that look like sheep from a distance. Now, how do you begin to be discerning? This is very important for your family and your life. Very important. Jesus emphasizes this. So what do we look for? When you look for a church home, for teachers, for spiritual leaders that guide you and encourage you and care for you, First of all, I think the text says something here. Do they teach the narrow gate and the hard way of cross-bearing discipleship without compromise? Or do they accommodate the hard truth of Scripture for their own success and security? Do they tickle ears do they tell you what you want to hear or do they declare the truth you need to hear and they need to hear? 
Do they live before an audience of one? And do they have a shepherd's heart? Jesus is warning us, all of us who would name the name of Jesus, of the real and present danger of false teachers, pastors, leaders, who distort the truth to accomplish success, personalities, all that. But I want you to notice in the text, Jesus focuses on another area of deception that I think he thinks is more compelling based on the structure and literary progression. Notice Jesus on the warning sign first says, don't be deceived by others, be discerning, look carefully. But now he turns and says, don't deceive yourself. Because perhaps the greatest spiritual deception is self-deception and false spirituality. Now notice verses 21 through 23. I think we often skip over this. Notice what the text says. Let me just highlight this for us this morning. Listen carefully. These are the words of our Lord Jesus. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, that's the picture, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day, that means the day of judgment when all of us will stand before God and give an account. That's the picture. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Impressive resume, huh? And Jesus responds in some of the most sobering and difficult words of all of Holy Scripture to me. He says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I think the NIV translates this last word better, evildoers. Now, this is a hard thing to teach, and it's a hard thing to live, and it's a challenge in my life. Because pastors can be deceived themselves. Few things stun me more than my own ability and many people that I serve, ability to rationalize and justify sin and partial obedience. It is one of the greatest perils to our soul to place false confidence in fruitless faith, to be very blind to our blind spots. Uh, This week, one of our members sent me an uh, an interesting email. (laughs) I've been thinking about it all week. It's one of those emails, and uh, she told the story. I think this guy is a blogger that's followed quite a bit. His name is John Fisher. And uh, John Fisher in his blog described this past week that he left Southern California to catch a plane at LAX. And uh, being a good USC guy, a Trojan, um, he was heading to Philadelphia, and he saw the weather, and it was colder in Philadelphia. So last minute, typical guy rushing out the door, catching a plane to LAX to Philadelphia, he reaches under his bed and grabs his USC sweatshirt that he keeps there. (laughs) And so... He heads to the airport, gets in the plane. The plane's kind of cold. So he puts this sweatshirt on, and they take off to Philadelphia. It's a long flight. If you've done that flight, it's a long flight. 20, 30 minutes into the flight, he's like, he's like, huh. He starts smelling this bad smell. You, you've been in a packed plane. You know that, well, if it's a, you know, I won't get all the details, but bad tennis shoes or whatever it is, you can smell it. You know, it's, it's a kind of whiff, whiff, whiff every now and then. Whoa. And it's a smell of urine. 
So as the <laughs> flight goes further and further on, he's getting more and more upset. He's looking around. There's some guys near him that he sure haven't bathed in a month. You know, he's thinking, that's the perpetrator, you know? And he's starting to create this. I'm getting ticked. Like, will these people take a bath? You know, I, I, how rude is this? And he's getting all ticked up inside. And then during the flight, which is very typical for me. I don't know why. You ever sneeze on, on flights? I sneeze. I don't know if it's a pressure. I'm sneezing. So he has a couple sneezes, and then you start sneezing. Betty, instead of just, you know, like this, he goes. <laughs> and all of a sudden, it sneeze in his armpit. This incredible inconvenient truth hits him. And he smells this urine smell, full blast. And he realizes at the moment that he is the perpetrator of this horrible smell. And he realizes that his dog has decided to make his territorial mark under the bed on his USC sweatshirt. And as I was reading this, I was not only howling with laughter, but he brings it to the bottom line. I can relate to this. He said, man, it's just amazing how blind we are to our own blind spots that we don't smell our stuff. Yes. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying we don't smell our stuff. That we are blind to our blind spots. And when you look at this text, you are amazed. Look at verses 21 to 23. Three times they say, we did this all in your name. I mean, if you'd ask them, they love Jesus. Yeah, we love Jesus. I mean, it's the other people that got the problems. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not me. And Jesus I mean, how do you get this idea to cast out demons? And I don't understand all this. I've, I've studied the best scholars. I have no idea what this means. But Jesus brings it home, doesn't he? In the most startling statement in the day of judgment, he says, I never knew you. Depart from me. Wow. If you were to ask these people they love Jesus, yeah. Isn't that amazing? And so what I think Jesus is saying is that the true path to discipleship is not just knowing about Jesus. It is being known by Jesus. Jesus' startling words here in verse 23 to me are some of the most dreadfully sobering words in all of Holy Scripture. For me, Pastor Tom. Because our capacity to not smell our stuff be blind to our blind spots, to rationalize our life and disobedience is unbelievable. All of us. And I think what he is saying here is that there is a real and present danger to each one of our lives. What is that? We can have a profession of faith and live a life of disobedience. And when we do, we are in great and grave peril. We can intellectually affirm who Jesus is, his teaching. And we can volitionally disobey him. The Gospel writer Luke, if you want to look at a parallel text that is just riveting and dripping with irony. I mean, Matthew's subtle. Luke is not subtle. Same context. In Luke chapter 6, you might want to read this later on today, 
Jesus bluntly says in this text, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? There's such a peril here. A profession of faith without heartfelt obedience is the most perilous deception imaginable. All of us, all of us can be in that blind spot and think we're on the hard path but actually be on another path. You know, when it comes to mirrors, (laughs) if you're younger, you don't mind mirrors, but as you get older, it's a sobering thing, y'all. And I like to spend about this much time in front of my mirror. You know, I don't have to look at myself. You guys do, so, you know, you have it harder. But I just look at the mirror. I just glance at the mirror. You know, hopefully there's nothing in my nose or something really gross, right? <laughs> not to gross you out. But I, I just do a quick glance to make sure I'm not killing somebody with something. But, you know, I should spend more time taking a little bit of a longer, lingering look. What Jesus does next as he ends his sermon is he puts a mirror right in front of us and he says, don't glance, linger. The mirror is a story. We know the story. Most of us, we've heard it. We heard it read beautifully this morning. The story is not complex. (laughs) It's not meant for the person sitting next to you It's meant for you. Jesus' story is simple and straightforward, isn't it? It's a compelling big idea that is the building of the whole Sermon on the Mount. Very important, eh? And this message, this big idea, pivots on contrast between a wise person and a foolish person person who goes through the narrow gate, Jesus is the gatekeeper, the only gatekeeper. And the hard way and those who choose the wide gate and the easy way. This is what Jesus is saying. So now he shifts it. Stories about two builders. All of us build a life, don't we? There are two foundations. Really only one. Luke emphasizes one. Matthew Suggests perhaps sand's possible, but the idea is the wise person builds on the foundation, the rock of Jesus. The foolish one builds on the sand or on himself. And both can look really good. Both can go through life looking good. Because the flood imagery here in context is not just when life dumps on us, and it does, and you can see what people, quote, are made of when life is really hard, right? But that's not what Jesus is getting at. Jesus is saying at the end of the day, when you stand before me, I will say, welcome, I know you, or I never knew you. This is a very sober text. It's a mirror for us. 
And in verse 15, we have this text begin with an explicit warning we cannot miss. It's like a buzzer. Here we have a gentle, implicit warning through a story. They are both warning us of the same thing. What is that? To hear what Jesus says and to not do it is the most perilous minefield ever to step in. Because the path to true life is through the narrow gate and the hard way. It is following Jesus. Jesus says true disciples are wise for they hear what Jesus says and do what Jesus says. They do what he says. So in this series, we've been looking at two questions, right? Who is Jesus? He is the narrow gate. He is the way. He is the way. That might not sell well in our day, but Jesus says very clearly, unambiguously, and crystally clear, the one who created the world, who sustains it all, who died for you and me, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. What does it mean to follow him? It means, Jesus says, to embrace the hard way of submission and obedience to Jesus' words, his teachings. See, Jesus knows that we were designed for a certain kind of life. It's the life we long to live, the life we struggle to live. And Jesus points us the way to live this life. It is found on the path of discipleship. I think the tendency for us, I've heard from several of you in emails, and I love those conversations we have together, is when we go through these series of hard statements, we wonder, is this possible for anyone to live? You ever felt like that? Is Jesus setting the standards so high? What's the way forward for us? Let me give three encouragements for you this morning. This message is a sober message, but it's not one without confident hope if we understand what Jesus is saying. First, gain a proper confidence in the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that at the end of the day, it's not about what you have done or what I have done, but what Christ has done on that cross. The people Jesus are warning, the people he's warning in this sermon are religious people who have this false confidence because they have placed it in their own religious pedigree, the number of times they've been in church, their accomplishments, religious service, caring for the poor, or any other merit, rather than in Christ's work on the cross alone. They have the wrong foundation. I love the old hymn writer who put it this way, it is well with my soul. Why? Why is there confidence in the gospel? It says, because Christ has regarded our helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. This text in Matthew, hear me very clearly, does not teach a kind of work salvation that somehow by our obedience we merit salvation. Jesus' words address the perilous deception of mere profession of faith and then a disobedient way of life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was martyred by the Nazis, who's written the finest book on discipleship, apart from Holy Scripture, in my opinion, The Cost of Discipleship, says it this way. Dietrich says, only he who believes is obedient. And only he who is obedient believes. 
This is what I believe Jesus is speaking about. And when you and I embrace Christ as our Lord and Savior, when we place our complete trust in Him and His atoning work on the cross, His shed blood on our behalf, we can have confidence. We can have confidence that not only we know Him, but He knows us. You ever thought Jesus on the cross said many things, didn't He? Several statements. One of the things Jesus said on the cross, he cried out to the Father, remember, why have you forsaken me? Remember that? Somehow in that mysterious moment, it is as if the Father had to turn his back on his sin-bearing son, the the son who had never sinned, and when all the world's sin is on him, it is as if God the Father said to his son, in unthinkable horror, depart from me for I have never known you. Jesus was forsaken by the Father in all that mystery so that you and I would never have to hear on that day future, depart from me for I have never known you. John Newton, who understood the confidence of the gospel, wrote the most famous hymn of the church, Amazing Grace. All of us know that. John Newton was asked once about his confidence. He said, I know two things, two things I'm banking my life on. I am a great sinner. Anybody have an amen there? But then he said, Christ is a great Savior. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved the wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Religion is very comfortable with the wide gate and the easy way. But the gospel leads us through the narrow gate and to the hard path of cross-bearing like our Savior. The gospel gives us proper confidence. But I don't want us to miss something else. The gospel empowers us to live this life every day. We must not only have proper confidence in God, we must seek a daily dependence on the Holy Spirit. Before Jesus went to the cross, remember he gathered his disciples around him. He says, I'm not going to leave you alone. In other words, you can't do this alone. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, the paracletos, the one who's going to come alongside you, who's going to indwell you and going to empower you to live this life, to give you discernment and power to live this life, to obey and to submit in my yoke. The Apostle Paul says that we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be controlled and empowered by the Spirit. From beginning to end, the Christian life is a life of supernatural empowerment beginning to end. The moment we are born again in this whole new creation life, it is empowered by the Spirit and in the very last breath we breathe on this earth is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Someone said to me, the Christian life is not only difficult, it's impossible. And it is unless we understand the power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. Are you walking in the Spirit? If you know Christ this morning, are you filled with the Spirit? He is the one who comes alongside you and transforms you into greater Christ-likeness and empowers you to live your life at school with your friends, at work, and in your home. But let me say this. As a shepherd who loves you, the Holy Spirit's power is hindered when we are unwilling to obey God, in some areas of our life where there is an off-limits sign to God's 
word and to our obedience to it. It may be in our relationships with our roommate, our spouse, our children, our vocations at work, our families, our sexuality, our money, our time, our priorities. If you are a follower of Christ this morning and there's an off-limit sign in some area of your life, it is a welcome mat for satanic influence in your life. I don't understand all of that, but there's something compelling about the peril of partial obedience. Partial obedience is not obedience at all. It is self-deception. The Holy Spirit has been given to empower you and me to live this life Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, throughout the week. We can have confidence in the gospel, the narrow gate and the hard way. We can lean on the power of the Holy Spirit to transform our relationships, our life, day in and day out. We were not left alone to do this life. But we are also called to be the church together. The path of discipleship is not just you and Jesus. He calls you to a local congregation to help you live this life of submission and obedience and to commit yourself to a local church. This message is hard to give. It's hard to apply in my own life. But it's compelling we all listen to the Spirit of God and what he's saying to us individually this morning. So in closing this morning, let me challenge all of us that Jesus seems to be saying to us that there is a path of true discipleship and a path of false discipleship. And that obeying Jesus gives us the proper confidence and the security to experience true life. To live on the path of true life. So where are you this morning? Where are you this morning? Let's pray. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed this morning, would you just simply ask the Spirit of God, wherever you are on your spiritual journey, to speak into it? Do you know Christ? Have you embraced the gospel? Are you living this week at school and at work and in your marriage and your families and your money and all that life's about? in the power of the Holy Spirit? Are there any areas of your life that are off limits to the Spirit of God? Lord Jesus, speak. Holy Spirit, speak for your glory, your triune glory. Amen.